CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Here we go. It's Political Rewind. If you're listening in real time, it is Monday afternoon, President's Day. Uh, It's a big national holiday. I'm old school. I still think of February 12th as Abraham Lincoln's birthday. February 22nd is George Washington's birthday. But Jim Galloway, it's fine. It's nice to have another holiday. This is generic President's Day. Yeah, you know, it is what it is. That's Jim Galloway. He's the lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You already knew that. He's in the paper on Wednesdays and Sundays and oversees the Political Insider blog at uh, AJC.com. There you go. Uh, And we do have a really a virtual full house, and I'll tell you what I mean by that in a minute. First in the studio, along with Jim, Eric Tannenblatt. He is a Republican insider who has worked with any number of Republican presidential candidates. Uh, He's involved in state Republican Party politics and uh, is also a partner at the world's largest law firm, Dentons. How are you doing, Eric? I am doing well. Glad to be here. Good to see you. Howard Franklin, Democratic consultant joins us in the studio today. Howard, you've been down at the Capitol off and on. You've got clients down there during the session. I do. I do. It's been fun thus far. One of the issues you said you've been waiting to see is one that we're going to take on later in the show, and that's the election bill. Absolutely. Which has finally, has it been now dropped officially? Dropped officially last week. Okay. Um, When I said we're a virtual full house, by that I mean in Washington, Tamar Hallerman, Jim Galloway's colleague at the AJC, she's the Washington correspondent for AJC. Tamar, after some really busy times, you've got a little bit of a break. Uh, Both houses uh, are out this week, right? First recess in ages now that we're not shut down. (laughs) Okay, well, uh, we were going to talk to you in a little bit about how things are going up there since the uh, president's... um, Uh, declaration of a national emergency. And also joining us from the NPR studios in Washington, Kyle Hayes. He oversees PeachPod, which is a terrific podcast about uh, politics in the state of Georgia. Kyle, I think I'm correct that you dropped an episode in the last week that has to do with um, the ongoing problems that farmers in South Georgia are dealing with uh, as Hurricane Michael is still a problem, right? We did. We talked about a little of that and a little bit of the end of the shutdown discussions last week and the emergency declaration that came also. Okay. Um, so we're going to move right through uh, all of our topics today. We got a lot of them very quickly. A breaking news story from late this morning. The Georgia Supreme Court has issued a ruling which is going to uh, create, and they acknowledge it in their unanimous ruling, some problems for law enforcement in the state of Georgia. Jim, they ruled that a refusal to take a uh, breathalyzer test if you're stopped for um, presumed drunk driving or alleged drunk driving can no longer be used against a defendant in court because it's a violation of the uh, uh, right the Constitution gives against self-incrimination. Right, right. Uh, they said that that you that you cannot that you can't the prosecution cannot mention that uh, that refusal. Yeah, uh, which is which is stunning, and it was a unanimous decision. Yeah, uh, and that's the, that's important. I, I think uh, this happens at a very convenient time, actually, because we're we're just getting down to cases in the uh, in the legislature, and this is clearly clearly this is something that's going to have to be addressed and. Uh, there's pro- this is probably a pretty decent time for it to happen. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting. Eric, we were talking before the show, not quite sure exactly how the legislature remedies this, um, because self-incrimination is a violation of the Constitution. It'll be interesting to see how you craft a bill that would protect you from self-incrimination and still let law enforcement do what they need to do. Yeah, I'm not sure what the uh, the remedy is, but I'm sure that there's um, people far smarter than us that are working on it right now. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We'll watch and see how that uh, get moves forward. I just wanted to share that all with you uh, today. Uh, Jim, let's turn to you again to start the next conversation. We reported on Friday, as the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and Channel 2 did, and then again yesterday was on the front page of your newspaper, uh, this story which uh, reports that 
David Ralston, Speaker of the Georgia House, has used his position allegedly as Speaker and as a representative from uh, his district to delay for uh, noticeably long periods of time criminal cases against defendants who in many cases are accused of some very serious crime. Right. In one case, it's uh, a child enticement. In another case, it's uh, it's uh, assault against uh, a, a, a former wife. Uh, there's a there's a line in that story that's uh, that in, in which he was saying that, that in which we reported that uh, that some some prosecutors were saying that it takes uh, a longer to prosecute a DUI when uh, David Ralston is the uh, uh, is is the attorney for the defendant than it does to uh, try some murder cases. Yeah, Ralston- uh, it is it is it is really it, it's 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 an important story. This is one of those c- cases where you can tell how important it is. By the silence that surrounded it. Well, yeah, let's talk about that a little. Let me, let's first say that Ralston's answer to these uh, allegations are, th- he says this, he's no different than any other lawyer, legislator in the General Assembly, uh, using provisions outside of the legislative session when necessary to attend to my legislative duties as both the state representative and a speaker of the House, whether they're in session or not. Howard, what Jim said is really interesting uh, there's some outside voices uh, who are calling for an investigation. Eric Erickson, the prominent conservative uh, commentator and, you know, host at uh, WSB AM 750, um, among others, are saying that Ralston needs to be investigated. Um, I think, what's his name? That guy used to be on WSB AM 750, Neil? Neil Bortz. Bortz, that's his last name. <laughs> but as Jim points out, Democrats and Republicans in the General Assembly are remaining pretty quiet about this. I think it's a testament to the power that the Speaker is able to wield and the fact that he has been on a number of issues that are important to both Democrats and Republicans bipartisan. Uh, But I do think the silence, as Jim has said, though it's been deafening, I think other organizations will, I think, will take up this cause and we will hear more. I'm surprised. I think you guys mentioned earlier the state bar hasn't weighed in or been asked to weigh in just yet. I would not be surprised to see if uh, that if that changes in the, we- in the weeks to come. Yeah, Eric, I can't imagine this thing goes away completely. It is going to be a news story for some time. But um, we'll see how uh, Ralston deals with it. But the judges have agreed to the continuances, to the delays, and to the best of my knowledge, very little attention has been focused on them. I wonder if perhaps the AJC and Channel 2 are going to be looking at how they've played a role in all this. I think that that's the part of the story that hasn't been told yet. Um, I I think the speaker is actually following the law. I I talked to uh, a legislator who was involved in uh, getting the law passed, and it was to try and allow for lawyers to serve in the legislature. Some of the silence... I do think the speaker is well-respected on both sides of the aisle, and that has something to do with the silence. But I think that there's also some other lawyer legislators that may be doing similar things. Now, in terms of the seriousness of the crimes, I go back to what I said at the very beginning. I think the other part of the story is the judiciary. And if, you know, these are serious crimes and there's been that much of a delay, why have they been silent? Yeah, Kyle, we're talking about clients who have been accused of, uh, of violence against women, um, among any number of other crimes. And, um, and, and the allegation made in the, in the paper's accounting of this, uh, as they talk to uh, people for quotations, is that by delaying a, a case for five, six, ten years and more, uh, that accrues to the defendant's uh, benefit because witnesses dry up, people forget what had really happened. So um, many lawyers may use this t- tactic, but Ralston, according to the reporting, seems to have used it uh, to an extreme that calls for some investigation, if by no one else, the media organizations involved. Yeah, and I think this brings up the need to have a larger conversation about the institutional structures that stand in uh, in the way of survivors of sexual violence, of domestic violence. It, when uh, Stacey Evans launched her campaign for governor, she put out this video called 16 Homes, where she talked about an instance where she called the police on a man who was beating her mother, and the police said, oh, no, we know him. He'd never do that. And this sort of story that the speaker is involved in rings it 
to a similar, you know, in in a similar tone to me of people who have an, a power granted to them by an institution who are then wielding that power on behalf of people who at least appear to have done terrible things based on the reporting. And so I think beyond just the legal protection that the speaker has of invoking a law that is available to all legislators to combine their legislative business with the business they do as an attorney, there's a broader discussion about institutional power that needs to be had here. Yeah, there's, there's, there seems there's a little bit of competition here, constitutional competition. The, the, the bill, the provision uh, for uh, for uh, for uh, le- uh, legal delays uh, is contained in the state constitution. But the, the U.S. Constitution, and I believe the state constitution, also uh, guarantees the right to a speedy trial. And uh, and uh, I, I think those two things are in conflict, and I think that's where that's where if if you know if you're if you're a judge on a bench, that's where you probably want want to be weighing in. Um, let's go back to the political side of this, Jim. You you and Howard both made the point that uh, Speaker Ralston, among other things, is very well liked by Democrats and Republicans. Uh, he's considered to be a leader who is fair to both sides. He often uh, is able to tamp down legislation that many lawmakers would rather see go away, some of the more extreme measures that come up down there. Um, but it's it's not just they respect him. You talk about his power. It's not just Republicans who need the speaker to help them get the bills that they want passed. So it's it's more difficult for any side to go after him oh, at this oh, point. Oh, yeah. And look, look, you know, you can point to Scott Holcomb, uh, the Democrat from Atlanta, who who worked with the speaker to get uh, these uh, these rape uh, rape test uh, 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 kits uh, prosecuted. Uh, you can process more pro- quickly. process more quickly. You've got Calvin Smyrie, a Democrat from Columbus, who has worked with uh, with uh, the speaker on really important uh, items like transportation. Uh, Mary Margaret Oliver, uh, uh, another Democrat from Decatur, uh, is 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 quite close to the speaker. And you know, and look, you've got a. This is you know, it, it's it's a it's kind of a, it's not a situation that's that's uh, uh, unlike uh, Governor Northam in in Virginia where. You know, you 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 think about uh, House Speaker David Ralston disappearing, and then what replaces him? Because you've got a you've got a business community that's very reliant on the Speaker for uh, when it comes to issues like transportation and and keeping uh, keeping those uh, religious liberty bills at bay. Well, we'll see. I mean, I again, I I can't imagine there's not going to be continued reporting on this. Uh, we've invited uh, Speaker Ralston to uh, talk to us about this, and we'll. Stand by and hope that he may want to spend a few minutes uh, explaining all of this to us. So we'll see how that turns out. Tamar, let me turn to you on on another issue today. We said at the very top of the show that elections in Georgia are going to be in the spotlight this week. One of the ways they're going to be in the spotlight is uh, we go back to right after Democrats won control of the House and Elijah Cummings, therefore, became the chairman of the House uh, Government Affairs and Oversight Committee. Uh, Cummings made it clear that he was going to start looking at what uh, many had alleged were uh, voter suppression and other kinds of election violations in a, a number of states. And he had Georgia high on his list. And now tomorrow we've got an oversight subcommittee coming to Atlanta for hearings. Tell us about all that. This is actually a different committee from Elijah Cummings' oversight committee. This oh, is actually the oh. House Administration Committee, which has jurisdiction over elections. So actually, they were allowed to send election monitors oh. to different states uh, in November, which which we later found out we heard they you know they'd sent some people to Georgia. So as far as we know, there's going to only be Democrats coming to the Atlanta area tomorrow for a field hearing on voting rights, which is a huge issue for the Democrats now that they've taken control in the House. And the, the star witness uh, tomorrow is Stacey Abrams, where she's going to be talking um you know, uh, about her um, kind of speaking in her capacity as leader of this this founder of this voting rights group, Fair Fight Action, um, and about her experience running for governor. Um, so it'll be interesting to watch, but but Republicans don't seem like they want to participate um, at, at this point in the process. So, Eric, what does it mean if you have just Democrats coming in to investigate potential or alleged election irregularities in Georgia? How much credibility does a subcommittee in, in that acting in that capacity have? 
Well, I think it just makes it more political. And the fact that their, you know, highlighted speaker is Stacey Abrams in her home state as, you know, she keeps carrying on this campaign to get her to run for higher office. Um, so I think it's going to probably be more of the same. I don't think it's going to be taken as seriously. <laughs> well, I, I will say this. I think, um, and I think we talked about this before we went on air today. She has stayed busy. And the desire, the enthusiasm for her to launch another campaign has not subsided in the weeks and months since uh, November of last year. So, you know, I don't want to, I think this conversation will continue. I don't think we've seen anything definitive uh, that clears the last administration or the last Secretary of State, now Governor of any wrongdoing or of any, or even of uh, fixing some of the, the issues that may have prevented Stacey Abrams voters from actually making it to the polls last November. Yeah, there's, a, there's another point I'd like to make up about you know th this hearing. Of course, it will give Stacey Abrams another platform to talk about last year's election. But this is also important for House Democrats as they begin kind of laying a paper trail for themselves. They really want to restore portions of the Voting Rights Act that were struck down by the Supreme Court in 2013. Uh, but the court was very clear in its ruling that, that Congress needed to kind of lay down a, a paper trail for them to do this. So this is kind of uh, in that first wave of hearings to kind of show that Congress is studying the issue and that they're being very intentional about it, which is why they initially left out this voting rights piece. They, they left it out of their big election security ethics overhaul, H.R. 1, that they've been moving on in the last few weeks. Yeah, what's what's interesting, Bill, is, is tomorrow is kind of going to be a, a fight, a, an Atlanta-based fight for control of message. You've got you've got House Democrats at the Carter Center uh, with with Abrams uh, doing their thing. Uh, that's that's I think at about nine thirty or ten o'clock in the morning. At three o'clock in the afternoon in the state capitol, you will have a, a the House a subcommittee of the House Governmental Affairs Committee taking up HB three sixteen, which is the the Republican backed bill to uh, to to put a certain kind of of voting machine uh, throughout the state and to make a number of changes. To uh, to uh, to how uh, votes are are, are how, how voters are processed and how they're vetted. So and, and I wouldn't make light of that the, those other portions of the bill because they oh, no. address a lot of the issues that were raised during the last election, and the Republicans are putting forward uh, solutions or how to address. We, them. we would call them sweeteners to get uh, to get Dem Democrats on board for the the main prize, which is 150 million dollars. In, in machines. All right. Before we switch to talking about HB 316, let's just finish up a couple of uh, uh, minutes on the uh, committee hearing, the subcommittee that's coming in tomorrow. Um, so tomorrow, we're going to hear from Stacey Abrams, or the subcommittee will hear from Stacey Abrams. Do we have the rest of the agenda? Who is she the only witness tomorrow? Do we know others who are going to be testifying? There's going to be a handful of different folks. There's the legal director for the Georgia ACLU who will be there. You'll have Cliff Albright, who's the co-founder of Black Voters Matter. You'll also have a Fulton County voter testifying and um, I believe one or two other advocates as well. But, but overall, you know, this is a Democratic hearing being shaped by Democratic leaders in the House. Republicans don't really want to engage at this point. I thought you made a really interesting comment when you said that because here, these hearings are laying the groundwork for how the House, the Democratic-controlled House now, may move forward on election reform kinds of legislation, which, if I'm correct, Tamar, we thought that those elements, and you've already said they're not, but that many of those elements or some of them were going to be included in that massive bill, the first piece of legislation the majority uh, filed in the House, HB1, and now the election reform elements have been pulled out to save them for when they have more information, more evidence to uh, use? Well, we're talking just about the voting rights piece that's been pulled out where they need more evidence. And that's to restore the, the pre-clearance where, where basically a lot of southern states were required to get approval from the Justice Department before they made any major changes to election rules. So that included Georgia for many years. Um, all the rest of the parts, which includes a bunch of money for states who want new voting machines, yeah. election security. That's there, all there's still also in there. That's all still okay. in there. There's. So, so they're moving ahead with that, and they could move as quickly as um, next week if they wanted to in the House. You know, Kyle, um, it, what's interesting about what Tamara just said about the voting rights element of this is that I don't think voting right, the voting rights 
uh, law and the way in which it was uh, struck down by the Supreme Court, the, the elements that Georgia, uh, uh, certainly Democrats, had hoped would remain in place. I'm not sure we, we have talked enough during the 18 election cycle about the significance of that in all of these accusations, these allegations about problems with voting here. Yeah, I think it's kind of flown under the radar, but I think you can look at the instances of people who've struggled to vote or had problems with registration that changes like these and other changes around district lines and precinct locations, they're all derivative out of the loss of that preclearance authority and having the Department of Justice be a backstop against states making changes that some would perceive to be aimed at making it harder for some people to vote. Okay, so um, let's move ahead then and talk about HB 316, which you said, Jim, tomorrow at 3 o'clock we'll have our first and only, oh, oh, this is the only only opportunity for public testimony for hearings for the hearings within the on on the House side. Howard, why were you, why have you been waiting for this? You said before the show this is the big bill you've been waiting to drop. Well, it's a obviously a conversation that has been ongoing since last year. We've known that that the state has operated uh, pretty old voting machines, and there's been all this discussion of uh, lack of cybersecurity. You know. Uh, a litany of issues that have taken place the last several years. I'll tell you this, in, in talking to Democrats uh, about this legislation, I think we'd acknowledge some of the points that Eric made and that there have been some some real improvements in terms of what's been proposed. I, I do think there's still some, some loopholes large enough to drive a truck through that Democrats are going to point out. And they did point out uh, maybe two weeks ago when the House Democratic Caucus organized a similar event that was also a demo for a number of the competing uh, voting machine vendors to come in and basically allowed a number of both Democratic and a handful of Republican lawmakers to ask questions, to talk about cybersecurity, and really to, to continue to have this discussion about hand-marked versus machine-marked uh, ballots that we'd also ultimately uh, will offer to Georgia voters. So, Eric, you talked about the, or Jim called them sweeteners, but in addition to the uh, measure, <clears throat> excuse me, the parts of the measure that refer to the new machines, uh, being authorized. One of the biggest changes is one that got an enormous amount of attention in the election cycle, and that was the uh, election, the voter registration purges. Right. Many people critical of how quickly and how seemingly arbitrarily, in the critics' minds, people were purged from the voter rolls. And now the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, Republican Barry Fleming, has offered some remedies that uh, so, some say, Democrats say, not enough, but also admit it's a first step. Yeah. I mean, he extends uh, the, the period of time when you have to purge the votes uh, or when you're able to purge the votes. You have uh, more time to to reflect, reflect. You know, go ahead. Right. And, and notifying uh, notifying uh, voters <laughs> before those uh, uh, registrations are, are purged. And these these are things that were all raised uh, over the last several years. And so I would think that people that have been talking about these as big issues uh, should be pleased to see that they're in the bill. It, uh, the, the, go ahead. Howard. I'll just mention one other thing. I, you know, part of this legislation also includes the Electronic Registration Information Center, this uh, national collection of uh, secretaries of state who no, are known as Eric. Eric, there we go. <laughs> no pun intended. Um, but also, I think there's some concern about adding a new variable that might allow in the new secretary of state to still do purges with a with a, a national registry that we have no input into. All right, all right. let me just lay out a couple of the the specifics, though. It extends for first of all. It extends the time before a voter is declared inactive, mm -hmm. uh, which is the first step in removing them from the voting rolls. It, um, it, voters have to have been uh, in some way inactive for five years instead of what is currently three years. And now the voters have at least 30 days before their registrations are canceled. Um, they get notice and they have more time to challenge the, uh, their removal from the, the role. So, you know, Jim, this sounds like a, a step in the right direction and also a smart move by Republicans who don't want to deal with this issue in the 2020 election cycle. Right, right. And and, and it does a couple other things. I think it, it, it uh, extends, it, it requires that any precinct changes be done, uh, uh, I think, uh, what, 60 days in advance? 
uh, and which which would which would help uh, avoid the situation that we had down in Randolph County. And also the absentee ballots, the signatures, the mm -hmm. um, you know apparent mismatches, you know, getting rid mm -hmm. of those absentee ballots. But but those are the, but but truly these those are those are kind of concessions that the Republicans uh, are are willing to make and 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 to your point yeah a lot of that is is uh, uh, prevent defense I think uh, but the main main goal of this is to is to designate what kind of machines and that's that's going to be the the, the, the Georgians vote it, on yeah, and that's that's going to be the big issue yeah. Um... Tomorrow, we are going to see that as a big issue. Of course, there, for some strange reason that I have still not quite grasped, it has become a partisan issue. Republicans who control the legislature favor so-called ballot marking devices, which means you continue to vote on a touchscreen machine, but you get a paper receipt to uh, show you that your vote has also been cast correctly. Also supported by the last Democratic Secretary of State, Kathy Cox. Yeah, no, no, I understand yeah. that. But for some strange reason, it has, for the most part, divided along long partisan lines. And tomorrow, the uh, Republicans are about to, the Democrats say, we want hand-marked, we want to be able to fill in a bubble or, or whatever. It's, are we going to start seeing, it's, how is Congress, now that we've got HB1, I, the, how much attention are they going to call to all of this on a national level in the months ahead? I think it's going to be a little bit less about actual voting machines and sure. more about things like cybersecurity and protecting the national or, you know, statewide election um, kind of networks from foreign influence. You know, we're still all of these committees are, are kind of ramping up their investigations into into um Russia and how Trump got elected. And, and you're going to see that more as, as Bob Mueller kind of comes out with his report, presumably in the next few months. Um, if, if he starts really getting into the, the um, vulnerabilities in the election system, I think that's where you're going to start seeing Congress jump in. Yes, because but, when it comes to actual voting machines, that's more of a, a state issue. Well, I understand that. But there are those who are arguing against the touchscreen machines, because although they are not wired to networks, typically, there are ways to get into the firmware. There are ways to inject an individual machine with a virus that could change a, an election outcome. So while the feds may not be taking or Congress may not be taking it up, it is one of the arguments that those who prefer paper ballots have been uh, using on it. So, um, so tomorrow, dueling uh, events. The Democrats come in and get Stacey Abrams to testify about what she sees as big voting irregularities, and then HB 316 up for a committee hearing. And that could be a rather raucous event. I would think that you're going to see a lot of uh, law enforcement. Present. Cannot wait. To, yeah, I'll bet that's true. All right, let's get our first break of the show in. When we come back, Elizabeth Warren's the uh, first president declared presidential candidate to come to Atlanta, the Atlanta area, to uh Talk about her campaign. We're going to uh, get into that issue and more. This is Political Rewind. Now is the perfect time to clean out the garage and get rid of that car you no longer need. You'll face the coming months with a fresh start. And by donating your used car to GPB, you'll even get a tax deduction. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or donate securely online at gpb.org slash cars. And thanks. Rates of stress and anxiety are up among teenage girls, way up. We actually run the risk of raising a generation that becomes stressed about being stressed and anxious about being anxious. I'm Mary Louise Kelly, helping girls navigate adolescence by giving them a toolkit to handle everything from friends to school. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. It's 4 till 7 today on GPB and gpbnews.org. Elizabeth Warren was in Gwinnett County, I think Lawrenceville, on uh, Saturday afternoon. She had a crowd <laughs> of people come out to uh, see her speak. Our own Robert Jimison was there, and he filed this report. With more than 600 days until the 2020 presidential elections and still no date set for Georgians to vote in the presidential primary, the state has already seen its first campaign stop. U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren held a rally in Gwinnett County on Saturday, laying out her plan in front of roughly 1,100 supporters. The Democrat from Massachusetts told the crowd that while Georgia has voted Republican in the last six presidential elections, that the state is showing signs of turning blue. I'm convinced that Georgia can become blue. In fact, we might argue Georgia is already 
blue. It's just going to take a little time to get all those folks to the polls and all those folks' votes counted. And that spoke to voter Kelly Schnellinger, a health care worker who lives in Gwinnett County. That we have a fighting chance to, to win this, this race and that she feels it's worth it to come here and try and win this, this district. After waiting in line to take photos with Warren, Schnellinger said that the crowded field of Democrats is likely to produce a strong candidate and that she will attend future events for Democrats who come to campaign in the state. I think it's good because whoever comes through will be good for us. I like her. I will go. If the other ones come here, I will come and listen to them, too, to hear their sides. So Elizabeth Warren uh, comes to Georgia. Jim, you know what I think is fascinating about this is we're going to I think we're going to see with this potentially huge field of Democrats, uh, different candidates carve out different geographic areas and think about where the votes are, where the electoral votes are eventually. So, for instance, Amy Klobuchar focusing clearly on the Midwest, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, Except Iowa. Except she's likely to be here on Friday. Okay, well, go ahead. Let's talk. Uh, about that's it. all I know right there. Okay, I have, that's the some some of my knowledge right there. I don't know where, <laughs> when. Or well, how. then that raises the question okay. I wanted to ask. Tomorrow, do we <laughs> expect that we're going to see what Elizabeth Warren suggests, which is that Georgia is going to become a battleground state that virtually all the Democrats who are uh, running are going to have to uh, uh, come to town for? I'm sure, you know, that's what all the Democrats are going to be saying, especially if you have so many, um, so many different folks um, competing in this race. And, and everybody's trying to kind of forge their own different lanes. You have Klobuchar, like you said, kind of trying to go that Midwestern path. But there's others who say the battlefield has shifted to places like Arizona, to places like Georgia. And I think they see how close some of the congressional races were last year, particularly in, in Lawrenceville, you know, the 7th District race between Carolyn Bordeaux and, and Rob Woodall as a sign that they really can compete here. Ideology is going to play a role in all of this. Let me, I, Eric Tannable, I can't wait to jump in. Let me go to Howard and then you. Uh, it, it may not be geography, but ideology, certainly, Howard. Uh, last year, Stacey Abrams ran a race at pretty successfully, coming closer than any other Democrat has in, in decades, to winning the governor's office uh, by being a, 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 frankly, a liberal candidate. Elizabeth Warren is about as liberal a candidate as you can get. Is that going to play well in for Georgia voters? I mean, I, you got to acknowledge this is Georgia and we should separate. We will have and I know the date's not been set yet. We just discussed that. We'll have a primary before we have a general election. Well, sure. But so, is the most liberal Democrat going to emerge victorious from the primary? That, field? I think I think that's quite <laughs> possible in any you know caucus or primary setting. I think that's exactly how we got uh, Donald Trump, you know, two and a half, three years ago. But I, I think it's important to acknowledge Quinnette County, not half a generation ago, was the most reliable vote center for Republicans, not just in Metro Atlanta, but it's statewide. And now you've got Stacey Abrams unsuccessful in the bid for governor, but winning it by 14 points. Hillary Clinton winning it by six points. I, I think they're absolutely, as Democrats come here to compete, for the primary and the general election, when we finally have a nominee, Gwinnett County is going to be ground zero. I mean, you got to expect it. Before it would have been Fulton in the cab, Gwinnett has cemented its place in, in this competition. Eric, you would love to see uh, Elizabeth Warren, and again, in the terms of a Georgia primary, emerge as the face of the Democratic presidential contest, wouldn't you? A absolutely. I hope she comes. <laughs> I hope she comes down many, many more times. Because I think a, a Massachusetts liberal socialist is the great, a great face for the Democratic Party. And, uh, you know, I think, first of all, I think she's disqualified herself as a, you know, serious candidate for president with, you know, some of the things that have just happened with her on, on you know, declaring herself a, a Native American. And then that issue's resurfaced again. And I think we hadn't seen the, the end of it. But I just think a Massachusetts liberal... Uh, doesn't work in Georgia. Kyle, we are going to establish a drinking game for people who listen to Political Rewind every time a Republican <laughs> uses the word socialist <laughs> to talk about a Democratic presidential candidate. You've got to take a drink. But Eric makes an interesting point. I mean, if if the face of the Democratic Party, and again, I'm talking about the Georgia primary for Democratic candidates, not the national election, how are Georgia voters going to react to the most liberal Democratic candidates like an Elizabeth Warren? 
Well, I think even though Eric would say that she's a socialist, the actual socialists would say that Elizabeth Warren is too much of a capitalist. I wouldn't necessarily <laughs> throw out um, the, ide- the ideology right away. I think when you hear Elizabeth Warren on the trail, she talks a lot about consumer protection issues. She helped uh, create the idea that became the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And it, for a region like ours that was so scarred by the Great Recession in the, in the fall in the mortgage markets, her message of being against corporations and against them taking advantage of everyday people may resonate if she can get beyond the, is this a socialist idea or a capitalist idea, and get it focused on the people who would actually be impacted by her ideas. So I wouldn't actually rule her out uh, all that quickly. No, but uh, what I would I would uh, point to is I, I'm I'm going back to geography here. Sure. And 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 her decision to focus on Gwinnett County, and I think you're going to see when I, I Eric apparently knows more about the uh, the Amy Klobuchar visit than I do, <laughs> uh, uh, but but I would assume that she's going to be visiting that territory too. You're going to see this. You've you've got. You've got a, a good situation where you've got two very hot congressional races side by side, the 6th District and the 7th District. You, you, uh, you know, Democrats are going to be playing defense on, on, on one. Republicans are going to be playing defense on the other without an incumbent. And, and uh, this, it could be you could see a lot of, lot of symbiotic en- energy here. Tomorrow, yeah. But if I, if I, if I was uh, Lucy McBath or uh, Carolyn Bordeaux, if she's the nominee, I'd much rather have Amy Klobuchar yeah. next to me than Elizabeth sure. Warren. Sure, I mean Amy Klobuchar with a message of "I know how to work across party lines." Have real have worked across party lines. Um, Tamar, it is worth noting though. Before we move on to another subject, we are very early in the 2020 presidential race. We still have any number of candidates yet to declare, and yet Georgia is already on the radar. We're already getting visits. Uh, we've got Elizabeth Warren, Galloway, and Tannenblatt. Apparently, a plant, Tannenblatt know more than I do about an Amy Klobuchar visit. So <laughs> the fact that George is getting in early visits like this, when for years we haven't seen hide nor hair of a presidential candidate, is really telling, isn't it? Yeah, I think I, I think people saw how close Stacey Abrams got last year and how much attention that race got nationally and, and want to jump on that. Not only, but, you know, the, the 7th Congressional District and, and Gwinnett in particular really plays into the narrative that, that Democrats have, that the country is, is diversifying and that, that voters want Democratic candidates and that places that were long seen as out of reach for the party are now coming into play. Not only that, but you're, you're near an airport and it's very easy to get around so that certainly helps. Well, actually, yeah, actually, I think Atlanta, well, Georgia holds the record for most uh, airport press conferences. Yes, uh, <laughs> in, in past years, yeah. I think Eric Tannenblatt can speak to that. Oh, I can't yeah. even tell you how many times we've had a, had a Bush, whether a president or presidential candidate Bush, come That's to right. Hartsfield long enough to talk to people like me standing against a, a fence at a private <laughs> uh, aviation uh, uh, shop and and come and talk to us briefly. All right, uh, one last note, and then we're going to take a break. Howard Franklin, thanks to uh, the AJC's Political Insider. We learned that after she spoke up there in Gwinnett County, Elizabeth, do you know where she went next? Have you read your jolt yet today? <laughs> I did. I do believe I saw the jolt, but I don't know where she, she went. She went downtown. She went to the Peachtree Plaza Hotel, went up to the Sundial, and who was her who was her dining guest? Well, I think it was Stacey Abrams. Stacey Abrams. And we <laughs> haven't talked about enough this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> no, just to sign, of course, that uh, every presidential candidate on the Democratic side is going to be courting Stacey Abrams in the months ahead. Let's get... A break out of the way, and we'll come back with a lot more. On the next Fresh Air, we look at some forgotten episodes in the history of U.S. territorial expansion. Daniel Immervar, author of How to Hide an Empire, talks with Dave Davies about the complexities of the American experience ruling foreign lands. U.S. territories today include Puerto Rico, Guam, American Samoa, and the Northern Marianas. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 here on GPB and gpbnews.org. Touch.
touchdown. John Nelson here from GPB Sports reminding you that in Georgia, the four seasons are not winter, spring, summer, and fall. It is football, spring football, Cruton, and National Signing Day. On the Football Fridays in Georgia podcast, we'll tell you the stories on and off the field. Subscribe at gpb.org forward slash sports and wherever your favorite podcasts are found. Welcome back to Rewind. I'm Bill Niga, Jim Galloway, Howard Franklin, Eric Tannenblad here in the studio. Uh, Kyle Hayes from Peach Pod is in the NPR studios in Washington. And Tamar Hallerman is, are you at the Capitol or are you uh, taking an easy day at home on President's Day, Tamar? I'm working from the Home Bureau, but it's not an easy day. Come on. All right, Jim, what the heck happened when this compromise, the continuing resolution was passed the other day, Trump signs it, and of course he declares a national emergency. But we don't want to forget one of the things that was left out of that continuing resolution was the emergency money for people devastated in South Georgia and people in other states who've had emergencies that have caused them great uh, economic damage. The money's not there. And and I, and I will defer quickly to tomorrow on all of this, but yeah. it looks like like, like uh, Johnny Isaacson and David uh, Perdue are, are going to be sponsoring legislation. I'm sure they'll get some quick signatures from California and uh, and and maybe Florida uh, to provide it, uh, for an immediate funding of, of this relief. Tomorrow? Yeah, Georgia lawmakers had been under the impression for months now that that any kind of disaster recovery money would be attached to this continuing resolution border wall deal, any sort of funding bill going through Congress. And they were really blindsided when the bill came out uh, late last week with with no money at all. And my uh, understanding, based on my reporting, is that it had gotten uh, uh, caught up in a different fight over Puerto Rico aid and that the negotiators decided it was better to avoid a shutdown now deal with the disaster stuff later than uh, fighting it out and leading to another shutdown. Howard, and not only are Purdue and Isaacson teaming up to sponsor a separate funding stream for, for Georgia's emergency money, but uh, both Governor Kemp and Commission, Ag Commissioner Gary uh, Black sent a letter to the delegation saying, get us help now. No, I, you know, the, the thing that's the weirdest about this scenario is that we've sent so many beyond just uh, the Georgia delegation. So many folks are uh, in and around the orbit of the White House. I would have expected that, you know, our, our ad commissioner or, you know, former um, Congressman Tom Price or any number of folks. I mean, we were just talking about a Georgian uh, who shares an alma mater with me. Uh, Kane, Herman Kane, actually can be considered for another prime post inside the Trump White House. Where are all these Georgians who have uh, the the line to the bat phone with the with well, the president? Well, your former boss, when you were you were chief of staff for Governor Sonny Perdue during his first term, you would have thought that Perdue, and he very well may have worked behind the scenes. We have no way of knowing this. Yeah, but th- this is one of those unintended consequences <laughs> when you're rushing and you're under pressure and you got. You know, this whole continuing resolution and fighting for, you know, funds for the wall. I, well, you know, I'd flip it since we hadn't talked about Stacey Abrams in 30 seconds. <laughs> Why didn't Stacey Abrams, the darling of the Democrats, get Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, to make sure the money was in it for her home state? Actually, and you know, thing, actually. One thing I, I... One thing I do want to mention, though, is that it's not like there's no money at all to clean up after Hurricane Michael. And I think that's a point that's gotten lost. FEMA has money, and it's been helping with the immediate cleanup needs after the storm. What the Georgia lawmakers had been pushing for was money to help farmers on top of that. Um, You know, UGA estimated that that the ag sector took a $2.5 billion hit. And and this extra money that they've been fighting for is to kind of help folks out as they look to settle up their debts from 2018 that planting year and as they hope to secure loans to plant for 2019. I'm glad. So Thank you. Not, there's nothing. That's right. Thank you for clarifying that. It, but it is true, Jim, that we're hearing from agriculture interests and even from the governor, they got to do more. Yeah. And, and uh, to, to Eric's point, yeah, I, I, we, we do have <laughs> divided government now. Yeah. Uh, Democrats are responsible for, for uh, half of the appropriation uh, uh, dilemma here. Uh, but I'll take. I'll also take uh, Howard's point. Is is that this is this is prime Trump territory, southwest 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 Georgia, and and and, and pretty much anywhere below I twenty. I mean, this is where Donald Trump wrapped, racked up some of his biggest margins in the country. 
All right. Um, and well, I, but I compliment the state. I mean, I think the governor and the ag commissioner, you know, they've put state resources. They may put more state resources. They're talking about and, another right. bill to add to, I think, $10 million or so. dollars. Right. And they've weighed in in Washington with the delegation. Um, okay. So, Kyle, last, late last week when Amazon said it was pulling out of the deal to uh, build a new headquarters in uh, New York at Long Island City, 25,000 jobs potentially. I think it was met with a certain glee by the, the, the states and cities that lost out on that competition. Probably a little of that here in Atlanta. The, the term is schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. That's exactly <laughs> what it is, schadenfreude. Uh, but Kyle, here's what's interesting about this. It's, it's, uh, this is an issue, the way in which people have reacted, Democrats particularly, to the decision by Amazon to pull out, is actually something that could very easily play out as a big issue in the 2020 election. Because you have those Democrats who are um, business-oriented, who believe that job creation uh, you have to pay for it with tax breaks like Amazon was getting. And then you have the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortezes cheering on the fact that Amazon pulled out. And this, I think, suggests a rift that we could see Democrats having to deal with all the way through the next election. Give me your resp- reaction to that. Yeah, I think defenders on the left of uh, Ocasio-Cortez would say that the billions that were going out the door to Amazon in terms of job incentives are billions that can't be spent in the city of New York on other services. I also think that this is an issue that we're dealing with in Georgia. You know, when Governor Camp ran for governor, he said that he would review the return on investment of all of our tax breaks. And, and we put in a big incentive package in Georgia to try to get Amazon to come to us. So I, I think that there's the discussion over the the effectiveness of this as a economic development strategy of of putting a lot of for putting forward a lot of public money for job incentives and what is lost when that money can't go to something else. Um, and then it folds into what I think will never be a never-ending battle in the Democratic Party, which is a battle between its left flank and its center. Yeah, and I think we're going to see that exposed even in, in a much more dramatic way in 2020 in the same way that we're watching Republicans uh, go through uh, uh, their own agonies about uh, in terms of the wings of the party, those who believe that Trump should go ahead and declare the emergency, needs the wall, and those who think it's over. We're going to watch it all play out. But Eric Tannenblatt, um, the the most liberal Democrats don't understand the economics of this deal at all. And AOC uh, is probably the prime example of that. The money that, that the tax credits was not cash that New York has to spend as it will. It's money that over a period of time would, in fact, uh, 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 go to relieve Amazon of a tax burden. But it's not as though they're making choices between whether to spend that money to build a hospital or to bring in Amazon. It's, it's all about future spending and return on investment. Yeah, it's very, it's very short-sighted. And for someone who, you know, is concerned about, you know, the impact on the community, she doesn't realize that uh, she is really hurting the community in the long run. Galloway well, but, was real, but let's let Galloway in here because you were looking at me like you think well, I'm well, completely wrong. No, no, I, I just th- I, I just think <laughs> that if you're a Republican and you're going to take this as an issue, I think you have to be very careful with it because you, you will find conservatives uh, who are equally doubtful about the role that government should play in, in, right. in offering incentives. Totally agree with Jim. And also, I mean, we had our we had a similar scenario with uh, the Gulch just a few months ago, late last year. And we had a lot of folks who had uh, ill-informed or uninformed uh, opinions or positions on what ultimately was going to take place. And so I think financial literacy, as we're talking about these things, uh, is something that just is going to be is going to have to happen whether it comes from our elected officials, from our government, et cetera. But it, I think the bigger issue is, isn't to undercut one you know, freshman lawmaker who may have some misgivings about what this looks like and really look to educate the larger public. 
But how well, and I would go ahead. Kyle. I would add. I would add too, just that uh, you know, New York City is not Detroit. There's different economic development strategies that you can take based on the economic health of your city. And Google, at about the same time that this Amazon dropping out was announced, Google announced that they bought a whole bunch of real estate in New York, where they're going to add jobs without any incentive. So, so. To what you said, Bill, it's not a pot of money that's sitting there, but that is property in New York that Amazon left that's probably going to get developed anyways, and it'll get developed without the incentives instead of yeah, with that's them. Yeah, that's an awfully good point. And in fact, you make the argument that has been made by any number of people that a business is going to locate where it wants to locate, and you don't necessarily have to provide incentives. My interest in this has to do with how it will be played as a political issue that might divide uh, democratic thinking as we move toward uh, the 2020 cycle. Uh, Tamara, do you see that as happening? Well, you're seeing it in a much broader sense. One of the earlier attack lines that Republicans have been using for Democrats in swing districts like Lucy McBath's is that Democrats are socialists tying everything that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is doing to, to Lucy McBath, to people like Carolyn Bordeaux, or at least getting them to answer for what Ocasio-Cortez is, is doing. You're going to see that strategy play out over and over again in the months ahead as, as um, Republicans seek an edge in, in these districts. Um, all right. Tomorrow, we're virtually out of time. But we've mentioned uh, uh, Ocasio-Cortez a couple times now. What kind of phenomenon? You're up there. Tell us about the phenomenon of her in the Capitol, the kind of swarms of reporters and others who seem to be around her. She has become a true national phenom, hasn't she? Yeah, it's it's nuts. And, um, you know, for me, it's, for me, you know, there, there's always a trail of about 10 reporters behind her wherever she goes. For me, it's, it's crazy as a millennial. You know, I'm 29. And to see somebody my age who's a member of Congress is pretty wild as it is. Um, and to see somebody who can command as much attention as somebody like Nancy Pelosi with one tweet is, is pretty insane as well. All right. And she dances in the hall. And she dances yeah. in the hallways. Um, all right. Well, look, we are unfortunately out of time for today's Political Rewind. Uh, Kyle Hayes in Washington. Again, it is Peach Pod. You can uh, subscribe to it wherever you get your podcast from, correct, Kyle? Yeah. Yes. Uh, do you have you have an agriculture, one that's part agriculture? Do you have another one that's dropping soon? Uh, the next one we're going to drop this Thursday, we're going to talk about Medicaid waivers and the health care discussion oh, that's terrific. emerging now. Terrific. Well, we're going to talk about Medicare waivers, uh, Medicaid waivers on this show on Wednesday. Um so people can get your podcast and listen to Rewind on Wednesday. Jim Galloway, as always, a pleasure to have you. It's Monday. You're here with us again on Friday. Uh, Eric Tannenblatt, thank you. Howard Franklin and Tamar Hallerman, enjoy a week with no members around you up there on the hill. Hallelujah. <laughs> All right. That's it for us today. We're back tomorrow again at 2 o'clock. Hope to see you then for another Political Rewind. Take care. <laughs>